of Washington's undoubtedly pro-Israel policy, and they were both Southern Baptists. Our philosophical differences and his somewhat gruff manner notwithstanding, Ali seemed to warm to me. He explained the logistics of securing the interview, saying the trip to meet bin Laden could take as little as ten days, but might take more than two weeks. Like all estimates about time in Afghanistan, the more pessimistic one proved accurate. As one wag puts it, when you're in Afghanistan, the clock slows down and your bowels speed up. The call came a month later. We were on. The correspondent would be Peter Arnett, who had won a Pulitzer Prize during his ten years of reporting in Vietnam, and whose courageous decision to remain in Baghdad during the Gulf War had helped put CNN on the map. The cameraman was a former British Army officer, Peter Juvenal, who had probably spent more time inside Afghanistan than any journalist in the world. Juvenal even rented a house in Kabul, Afghanistan's capital, where he would go on vacation. We landed in Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, early in the morning. Leaving the plane, I breathed in the first intoxicating smell of the sweet, pungent, rotting vegetation that characterizes the Indian subcontinent. While most Pakistani cities are hymns to chaos, overpopulation, and manic energy, Islamabad is divided into orderly zones with names like G6 and F1. We passed the pleasant white-walled villas of government bureaucrats and foreign diplomats. The scent of wild marijuana drifted through my window. The weed grows in profusion in Islamabad, even outside the headquarters of Pakistan's drug police. A couple of days later, we loaded up our van to make our way to Peshawar, the jumping-off point for Afghanistan. That would mean a drive along the Grand Trunk Road, where you're more likely to be killed than you are in the middle of the civil war inside neighboring Afghanistan. The Grand Trunk Road is one of the world's most formidable automotive experiences, its drivers all engaged in a protracted and high-speed game of chicken. Testaments to this distinctive style of driving can be seen in the numerous burned-out vehicles that lie by the side of the road. The mangled hulks of buses predominate, a consequence perhaps of the copious quantities of hashish the drivers ingest while making the trip. About halfway into the journey we cross the Indus River, which rises in a torrent in Tibet, but by this point has slowed to a meandering muddy flow, irrigating the plains around it. And then we were in Peshawar, a dusty, wild west kind of town. Peshawar is the capital of Pakistan's northwest frontier province, the gateway to the Khyber Pass, which runs through the Hindu Kush mountains into Afghanistan. Our first stop was the Pearl Continental Hotel. Displayed prominently in the lobby was a sign stating, Hotel guests are asked that their bodyguards kindly deposit all firearms at the front desk. In my bedroom, a green arrow on a table pointed towards Mecca, the direction for prayer. We whiled away a few days in Peshawar while Ali and a friend now dressed in their shalwar kameez, the loose-fitting shirts and pants that is Pakistan's national dress, went off to make contact. The week before our trip, the Taliban had decreed it was against Islam to film or photograph any living being, which would pose a bit of a problem for our project. This was the latest in a long list of what might be called Talibans, soccer, kite-flying, music, television, and the presence of females in schools and offices were all banned. Some of the decrees had a Monty Python-esque quality, like the rule banning the use of paper bags on the remote chance the paper might include recycled pages of the Quran. Behavior the Taliban deemed deviant was met with inventive punishments. 
Taliban religious scholars labored over the vital question of how to deal with homosexuals. Some say we should take these sinners to a high roof and throw them down, while others say we should dig a big hole beside a wall, bury them, then push the wall on top of them. A couple of days later, Ali returned, saying we had the okay to proceed. The next morning, our van set off from the hotel at the crack of dawn, as we had to reach the base of the Khyber Rifles Regiment no later than 9 a.m. The regiment would provide us with an armed escort through the no-man's land surrounding the Khyber Pass between Pakistan and Afghanistan. As the tribes surrounding the Khyber Pass enjoy a rich tradition of kidnapping, internecine feuds, and heroin smuggling, the prospect of an escort by the Pakistani government was a welcome one. We were less comforted, however, when we met the man who was to be our protector, an elderly soldier with a slight stoop whose Lee Enfield rifle had probably last seen action in World War I. We arrived at the offices of the Khyber Agency, and after an epic display of paper shuffling and stamping, we obtained our pass. The ancient rifleman jumped into the front of our van, where he promptly fell asleep. Then we drove through the outskirts of Peshawar, arriving at a checkpoint where a sign announced, Attention, entry of foreigners is prohibited beyond this point. We roused our escort from his slumbers, and he showed the soldiers manning the barrier that we had the requisite authorization to continue. We were allowed to pass on. Now we were in tribal territory. Along the road were rows of shops selling guns, and later shops with sheep tails in the window to signify hashish for sale. We continued east into the Khyber Pass, where the Indian subcontinent meets Central Asia. Alexander the Great's soldiers came this way during his campaign to conquer India. On one wall of the pass were reminders of another empire, the insignia of the British regiments that served at this blood-soaked frontier of the Raj during the 19th century. The hills soon grew into mountains. Scattered on the peaks were the houses of tribal families, miniature fortresses whose gun ports were not merely decorative. And then, suddenly, stretched out before us, was Afghanistan. The very word is an incantation. I never get over the thrill of seeing the country. In my imagination, it has always seemed like something out of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It promises mystery, a movement back into a time of medieval chivalry and medieval cruelty, an absence of the modern world that is both thrilling and disturbing, a place of extraordinary natural beauty that opens the mind to contemplation. The Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés was once asked to describe what Mexico looked like. He answered by taking a piece of parchment and crumpling it up, to illustrate the endless mountain ranges of the country. Cortez could have been describing much of Afghanistan. And then there is the light, pure and crystalline, for shortening distances and bathing everything in a pristine glow. You simply cannot take a bad picture in Afghanistan. Although a country at war, it is a place where one can find a species of personal tranquility rarely experienced in the West. The scene at the border itself was bedlam. Our hope was that the Taliban guards would assume we were workers for an aid agency and would wave us through without demanding to see our visas, which is exactly what they did. Shortly after we cleared the border post, we passed a graveyard dotted with fluttering green flags marking the graves of Arabs who had died fighting the Soviets. Here is where I took part in fighting the Russians, Ali said, as the mountainous terrain gave way to a lunar landscape. Other than an occasional rocky outcrop, there was literally no cover on these plains. 
According to the Pakistani journalist Rahimullah Yousafzai, Arabs drawn to the Afghan war would pitch white tents out in the open in the hopes of attracting Soviet fire, hoping for martyrdom. I saw one person who was crying because he survived an air attack, Yousafzai said. A Muslim killed in the course of jihad is Shahid, a martyr who is guaranteed entry to paradise. According to some traditions, the martyrs are attended by seventy virgins who will cater to their every desire. We drove past what had once been a large village, but now looked like an archaeological dig of a Sumerian city. The only evidence that this had once been a bustling town were the jagged fragments of walls. The Soviets had destroyed thousands of such villages, creating five million refugees and killing at least a million Afghans out of a pre-war population of fifteen million or so. The plains soon turned into cultivated fields and orchards. Before long, we arrived in Jalalabad, the compact town where we would be staying while we waited to see Bin Laden. As we drove into Jalalabad's bazaar area, I was puzzled by the many carpets in the middle of the streets. Someone explained to me that this was a trick of local merchants who laid out the carpets so that passing cars and trucks would roll over them and give them the authentic aged look prized by gullible Western buyers. Our lodgings would be the Spingar Hotel, named after the snow-capped mountains that dominated the view to the south. Taliban is the plural of Talib, meaning religious student. And refers to a group of students from religious schools in Pakistan and Afghanistan who took control of much of the country during the mid-1990s. The Taliban protected Bin Laden because they admired him for the role he had played in helping to dislodge the Soviets. In Jalalabad, the Taliban roared through town in Japanese pickup trucks with white flags fluttering from their antennae. The pickups were filled with fierce fighters, recognizable by their black or white turbans. Bringing back the Middle Ages on a fleet of Toyotas, the women in town, following Taliban edicts, were covered from head to foot in the burqa, an all-enveloping garment out of which one can barely see. Once driving through town, we encountered the first traffic jam I'd seen in tiny Jalalabad. After a couple of minutes, I realized the source: the Taliban had stopped all traffic during prayer time. Out of the window of our car, I could see a Talib fighter beating one hapless man with a stick. Because he hadn't stopped riding his bicycle, the Taliban were pariahs on the world stage because of their anti-Deluvian treatment of women in particular, and their dismal human rights record in general. But even the Taliban's harshest critics could not deny their one remarkable achievement: they'd restored order to much of the country. During the early 1990s, Afghanistan had become a patchwork of fiefdoms held by competing warlords. On a visit in 1993, I witnessed the anarchy in the country at first hand. Kabul, the capital, a once lovely city nestling in a vast valley, was then being destroyed by religious and ethnic militias. The fighting had left whole neighborhoods in ruins. Ancient palaces were pockmarked by shells. The Kabul Museum, which once housed masterpieces of Buddhist art, was now open to the sky, its ceiling blown off by mortar shells. It was as if the Afghans were applying the demented logic of their national passion, Bushkashi, a distant and violent cousin of Polo, to their capital. Bushkashi is played by horsemen who compete against each other to grab hold of the headless carcass of a calf. That's pretty much it for the rules. As a book on the sport observes, the calf is trampled, dragged, tugged, lifted, and lost again as one competitor after another 
tries to gain soul control. Now the carcass was Kabul. It was out of the sort of anarchy I witnessed in 1993 that the Taliban emerged in the southeastern Afghan city of Kandahar. Local residents had been angered for years by the payoffs demanded by the various militias at checkpoints on the roads around town. The final straw was a perhaps apocryphal story, the kind journalists say is too good to check. In 1994, two local warlords competing for the favors of a young boy had waged a full-scale tank battle in Kandahar's bazaar. To much local applause, a small group of religious students under the leadership of a shadowy, one-eyed cleric named Mullah Mohammed Omar took over the city. Within two years, Mullah Omar and his men had taken control of most of the country, partly by paying off local commanders and partly because of their dynamic tactics based on fast-moving fleets of pickup trucks, each carrying eight or so heavily armed fighters. And certainly the Taliban had made the country safer. Indeed, all types of crime and socially unacceptable behavior had fallen precipitously under the Taliban. This could partially be explained by the brutal punishments meted out by the religious warriors. Convicted robbers have their hands amputated, adulterers are stoned to death, and murderers can be personally executed by male members of the victim's family. The amputations and executions are the only public entertainment in a country starved of diversions. Despite the improvements in public security, many Afghans found the Taliban's social policies anathema. One morning I was walking towards the center of Jalalabad with Arnett when we were approached by a woman completely covered in a black burqa. As she drew nearer, I saw a pair of bright red shoes poking out below the hem of her garments. As she reached us, she nodded and in a clear, amused voice said in English, Hello, how are you? Good morning. We took it to be her way of saying, the Taliban may make me wear this get-up, but they can't control my thoughts. After several days of waiting in the Jalalabad Hotel, we were visited by a bin Laden emissary. Following a perfunctory survey of our gear, he announced, you can't bring any of this for the interview. Things looked up again when the media advisor said that we could shoot the interview on his handheld digital camera. Bin Laden feared that strangers with electronic equipment might be concealing some type of tracking device that would give away his location. The media advisor's parting words were, Bring only the clothes you are wearing. The following afternoon, a beaten-up blue Volkswagen van drew up at our hotel. Ali motioned hurriedly for us to get in and then drew curtains over the windows of the van. As the sun dipped, we drove west on the road to Kabul. Inside the van were three well-armed men. By nightfall, and under an almost full moon, we turned onto a little track headed...